We continue now to work our way through Mark's gospel, and we're in the second chapter, verses 13 through 22. Mark's gospel, chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. Before reading, let us bow before the Lord, our God. Almighty Father and our God, we pour out our hearts before Thee, asking that we would hear this word deep down in the soul, that Christ Himself, the author of this book, would preach this word to us, that this poor preacher would be set aside and that Christ Himself would speak His Word through what is proclaimed to the hearts of the lost and the hearts of the saved. And we ask that we would love the Word of God, that we would see Christ, that sin would be slain in our lives, that Christ would be exalted in our souls as we week after week turn to the Word of God and hang upon its truth and depend upon its promises and see once again that Thou art a gracious God who receives sinners. May we see that in that text that we are about to read, this wondrous text. In the name of Christ, we ask and pray it humbly at Thy footstool. Amen and amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. Mark's Gospel, chapter 2, beginning with verse 13. This is the Word of God. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, in this text we have both a feast and a fast, and the contrast is undoubtedly intentional. 
And looking at this contrast teaches us much about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mark's gospel is stressing, as we have seen, the kingdom of God that has come in Jesus' person and is announced in his ministry. God's saving rule is here in Christ. The kingdom has come in him. And one of the characteristics of the kingdom is joy, as we shall also see in this passage. We also see something else developing here. The two narratives that we have just looked at are the second and third of narratives, the prior being last week, in which we see the beginning of the development of such hatred for Jesus that it will lead to his crucifixion. There's something here about conflict. The next conflict begins already in the beginning of this passage as we see Jesus calls a tax collector. And that's the first thing we see. Jesus calls a tax collector. Levi would have been in a position to have seen the miracles of Jesus and to have heard his teaching on numerous occasions. And now Levi is called. It's told by Mark with a minimum of detail. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. Mark is showing Jesus authority and that his words bring with it divine compulsion, that his call is effectual, that he calls all sorts of people from all walks of life in his sovereign purpose. And Jesus calls sinners into a relationship with himself, just like this tax collector, Levi. Now, there was general contempt for tax collectors, and we know that in Galilee, Levi would have been working for Herod. He's collecting tariff on goods that traveled on the highway between Syria and Egypt, an ancient highway. Tax collectors charged exorbitant prices and were known both as extortionists and traitors. Tax collectors and sinners are spoken of frequently together in the gospel narratives. And undoubtedly, it was an offense to the religious leaders and also to the patriots that Jesus calls a tax collector that he calls Levi. This is not the sort of man that you call if your concern was to win the crowds and not offend religious leaders. Jesus is completely true to who he is, completely true to his mission, is concerned about glorifying his father, and he has come to save his elect who will be drawn from all walks of life, whether others like it or not. Indeed, the Lord has called all sorts of sinners from all walks of life right here in this congregation, has he not? And so, was there some mistake? Fishermen, that's one thing to call fishermen, but tax collectors, that's quite another. No, there was no mistake as is underscored in the next scene. And you will see the calling of Levi serves to make clear why Jesus came. The second thing we see is Jesus eats with sinners. Now, evidently, with a heart full of joy at the coming of Jesus into his life, Levi calls a gathering, a party, if you will, invited his fellow tax collectors, and undoubtedly he wants them to know Jesus also, and some of them already are following him. In Luke chapter 5, verse 28, we are told that Matthew, who is Levi, forsook all when Jesus called him. 
He found his all in Jesus Christ, and he wants these who have gathered round the table also to find their all in Christ, just as we should find our all in Christ. The Pharisees were not happy that Jesus ate with sinners. The tax collectors were regarded as inferior because they were disinterested in the laws added to God's law by the scribes and Pharisees. They did not, for example, observe ceremonial washing before they ate, and they did not, they did not separate the tithe. And so sinners here also has the meaning of outcasts. Jesus ate with those whom the Pharisees regarded as sinners and therefore unacceptable outcasts. They were sinners. But because they sinned against God and needed a Savior, not because they discounted Pharisaic interpretation of the law. And by the way, should we eat with and talk with sinners? Well, of course. We ourselves are sinners in need of grace. We also are outcasts. We as Christians are considered by many in our culture to be the off-scouring of the earth. What about sitting with drunkards, drunkards and wine-bibbers? Jesus did that too. Should we do that too? Listen, we are all sinners in need of grace, and we should love those who, like us, once lost, in sin and degradation, who needed to hear the gospel, want now others who were lost and undone to hear the gospel. We should be as welcoming of others as Jesus Christ is welcoming to us. However, there is a caveat. Some circumstances might not be good for some of you to be in depending upon your place and growth in the Christian life or, become what you, or because of what your peculiar temptations may be. And this may differ from Christian to Christian. You know your temptations. And so when I hear from some, Jesus did this, I want to say, yes, Jesus did this, but you are not Jesus. He was the holy, impeccable Son of God you and I are saved sinners that cannot expose ourselves to some things without dishonoring the Lord or even being with some people in some circumstances without knowing temptation to sin. So let it be heard deep within. We should welcome sinners. But some of us are not prepared to be in certain places and in certain circumstances in a way that brings glory to God. And so let it be heard within the heart there is only one Savior of sinners, and it is not you. There is only one Savior of sinners, and it is Jesus Christ. You know, there's an amazing section in Alfred Edersheim's Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, in which this Jewish Christian scholar mentions that, and he goes into great detail, to show that the rabbis knew nothing of the forgiveness of sin. Not really. They knew nothing of a free and unconditional justification. And he points out that while our Lord freely invited all sinners, no matter their past, assuring them of welcome and grace, the last word of the rabbis was only that of despair. People of God, Jesus came to receive sinners, to save the lost, to justify the ungodly. And now to move on, the feast undoubtedly 
points to another feast. And so the third thing is this. Jesus calls us to a messianic feast. Jesus is eating with outcasts, and this was far more thoroughgoing, more far-reaching and genuinely new than the Pharisees could ever have imagined. The feast of Jesus was eschatological. And so we read in verse 15, they reclined at table together with Jesus. And Jesus, that is his messianic name. He is the Messiah. And they are reclining at table with Jesus, the Messiah. And the whole of the Old Testament and Oriental thought on feasting must inform what we read here. When Jesus shared a meal with Levi and with his friends, they were sharing a meal with God incarnate, God in the flesh, the Messiah who ate with them. And the way the text reads, they reclined at table together with Jesus, suggests that even though Levi called them together, the host of the gathering is not Levi. The host of the gathering is Jesus. He is the center of attention. His words are the center of their conversation. Not Levi, but Jesus is the host. God in the flesh, the Messiah eating with sinners. Does this not ring a bell? Does this not suggest something to you? Well, it should. It suggests the messianic meal of forgiveness and anticipation of the messianic banquet of which the Old Testament speaks. It should suggest to you the Old Testament reading that Pastor McDonald read to us just a few moments ago from Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from their eyes, and the reproach of his people will take away. He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. This gathering anticipates those days, and the scriptures teem with the idea that the divine gifts are given by eating and drinking, the bread of life that satisfies hunger, the tree of life with leaves that heal, the heavenly manna, Jesus the water of life that quenches thirst forever, the wine of the world to come reserved for the children of the kingdom, the feast of the last days imparting life, the Bible describes the fellowship between Jesus and the Messiah and the Messianic people in terms of a great feast. In Luke 14, 15, blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. In Revelation 3:20, writing to the church of Laodicea, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. In Revelation 19.9, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage feast of the Lamb, all of which summarized and foreshadowed for us every time we come to the table of the Lord. So Jesus, the Messiah, God incarnate, sits, reclines at table 
with these, these lost outcasts. The Pharisees look on and can't even see what is happening. Even though they know the Old Testament, they do not know the Bible. Even though they know the Old Testament, they do not recognize because of their blindness, Jesus the Messiah, and Jesus eats with them, anticipating a greater gathering in which a multitude which no man can number will be gathered on that day in that great feast of the Lamb. And every tear will be wiped from our eyes, and death will be no more, all anticipated in this wonderful feast on this day when he called Levi to himself. And so what Jesus does is more stupendous than even the Pharisees can perceive, though they perceive it negatively. By the meal, Jesus is eating with sinners. Mark wants us to see the grace of God. He wants us to see an anticipation of the banquet when sinners sit at the Lord's table. He wants us to see a revelation, a manifestation of the picture of the forgiveness of sins. And we are to look at this and we are to be amazed. God incarnate, the impeccable Christ eating with sinners Jesus forgives sinners, dines with sinners, and hosts sinners at his table. As we just sang, Jesus, sinners, receives. And do we not read in Romans 5, 6, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So if you are here and you think, oh, my sins, they're so great, I could never be saved. That is an affront to the cross, for he died for the ungodly, and he draws sinners to himself who have no merit of their own. You know, thinking about this text, I couldn't help but remember this passage in Samuel Rutherford, and he speaks, this is one of our great Scottish Presbyterian forefathers, And he speaks of the Lord's Supper here, but I want you to hear it not only as an invitation to believers to come to the Supper, but as an invitation to the lost to come to Christ. Listen, here's what he said. Look to the Supper, and ye shall find it very expensive to Christ. For the fire that made it ready was the wrath of God. And the fuel and the wood for fire was Christ and a great burden of the sins of the elect on his back. And if Jesus had not been green timber, he had been burnt all to ashes. Christ was first boiled in his own blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. Then he was roasted and burnt on the cross and carved all to pieces with nails, spears, and buffetings to make him God's bread for the mouth and stomach of believers. And the sourest sauce in this supper to Christ was his dear father hiding himself. And when all is done... You cannot do him a worse turn than not to eat heartily. And so we placard Christ before you this morning as the altogether sufficient Christ who offers the gospel and calls through the preaching of the word this morning, calls lost sinners and saved to the feast in which he himself is the food of life and the drink of everlasting glory. Come and welcome 
to Jesus Christ. But now, fourthly, we see in this context that Jesus reveals his mission. Look at verses 16 and 17. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So he's there as the savior and physician of souls. A doctor who would not see his patients would not be a very good physician, would he? The Pharisees regarded themselves as righteous and accepted by God on the basis of their own performance. And this is questioned today by some, but it's clear in the Gospels and it's clear in other places in Scripture. We read in Romans 10, for example, that they tried to establish their own righteousness. So Jesus came for sinners. People who come to realize by the grace of God they could never establish their own righteousness nor in any way contribute to it. Just as I've been teaching in my class on Galatians on Sunday morning, we're justified by grace alone through faith alone through the work of Christ alone. And so this passage becomes the backdrop to such passages as chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Or chapter 14, verse 24, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for sinners. And there is Jesus with sinners. And though we do not know the conversation, we can know that he's telling them who he is and how they can be saved from their sins, that he is the Redeemer. Now, did you you notice how the question of Jesus is intended to uncover the heart? It is intended to reveal his mission and cause the Pharisee to ask, am I really righteous after all? What about you? What about me? Do we really think our filthy rags can declare us right before the throne of God? Do we really think we can contribute anything at all to our acceptance? No, not at all. And we have a natural bent. We have a fair, there's a Pharisee in every human heart. And we have a natural bent to think this way until regeneration changes our way of thinking. There was an illustration that was given for a totally different purpose that I want to make use of by a 19th century philosopher, but I'll give it to you in pretty much the form he used for my own purpose. He's showing the reason, or I am showing the reason, why a man will not come to Christ. The, the reason that that he is stuck in this way of thinking. There's this man that came to the doctor's office and he said, doctor, I'm dead. He insisted that he was dead. Well, the doctor says, of course, we, we all die. He said, no, you don't understand. I am dead. Uh, so the doctor was perplexed and said, let's try a little experiment. Do you agree with me that dead men do not bleed? He said, oh, dead men do not bleed. And so the doctor pricked him and he bled. And then the man said, well, I guess I was wrong. Dead men do bleed. (laughs) So you see, the point is he had a bent, a bent that wouldn't, his mind would not be changed no matter what was told to him. 
And we have a bent, a bent to self, a bent to sin, a bent to self-righteousness. This is what we mean by the total depravity of man. We have this bent, and nothing can free us but the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit granting us saving faith in Christ. Have you trusted in Christ alone for your acceptance with God? Have you been brought to that point that you see that you're a lost sinner? Has the Holy Spirit worked that way in your life? If you have not, the application is clear. And there's something more here than meets the eye. Jesus is tearing down the Pharisees' view of what is plausible. He's hitting home, and he does this time after time, showing that on our deepest level of real need, he only can be the physician that heals us. But listen, the Pharisees will hear these sorts of things from Jesus throughout his ministry. Some will come to faith in Christ, others will reject, and their hearts will become harder and harder and harder. So that the gospel preaching, it's a savor of life unto life, but also of death unto death. That's what makes the preaching of the gospel, among other things, so, so weighty. Oh, come to Christ. Do not have a hard heart. May the Holy Spirit grant you saving grace. But necessarily in this context of feasting, this brings us to the theme of joy and the final thing that we need to see here. Jesus brings kingdom joy. The last section in Jesus' responses relate to what has gone before in this emphasis on feasting and fasting. And it's all about contrasts. Jesus' disciples and also the Pharisees had a strict regimen of fasting, but your disciples do not. Why? Now bear in mind that the law only required one fast, and that was on the Day of Atonement. Yes, there were some other special fasts throughout the Old Testament, but the requirement was only this one on the Day of Atonement. But the Pharisees fasted twice a week, and they wanted everybody to know it, and they wanted everyone to see how glum they were. And that was their joyless religion. So the question is, why do you not fast and your disciples do not fast? Well, because my disciples are in a fundamentally different position. They have me, says Jesus. How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? John's disciples were oriented toward preparation. Jesus' disciples live in the joy of the inbreaking in the time of salvation because they belong to Jesus. And Jesus compares his presence with his disciples to a wedding feast. One does not fast at a wedding feast. It would be improper to fast at a wedding feast. Pastor McDonald and I have done lots of weddings. I've never seen a fast at a wedding feast. And it would be improper for the bridegroom's attendants to fast at a wedding feast. Here's Jesus healing the sick, raising the dead, healing the lepers, teaching as no man ever taught how incongruent it would be to fast. But the Pharisees especially contrast with Jesus and the joy of the kingdom. Jesus says it's like sewing unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If the cloth is washed, the patch will shrink and the whole garment will be useless. Or it's like pouring new wine into an old wineskin. When the new wine ferments, it will burst the old wineskin. These things are incongruous. 
as the religion of the Pharisees and the truth of Jesus, as these two things are incongruous. In Christ, the new has come. The new wine must be poured into new wineskins. The Pharisees taught that acceptance with God was through following the rigors of their interpretation of the law. Jesus taught that salvation depended completely on the grace of God. This is totally incongruous. God come down in the person of Christ as the way of salvation or following the law as a means of acceptance with God. This was the new reality of the kingdom that Jesus proclaimed that was an offense to the Pharisees. Now, the way of depending upon works for acceptance with God always leads to bondage and more bondage and more joylessness. I hope you're here. The law approach may change. But whatever the law approach is, it leads away from the feast and to the fast. The approach does change. In the 1920s and 30s, it was liberalism in pulpits, ministers like Harry Emerson Fosdick and others proclaiming salvation by character, salvation by good character. Well, that continues in many a church today, but it was a a law works religion. In the early 2000s, the Oxford University Press published the book, Soul Searching, The Lies of American Teenagers. And there were interviews with hundreds of teens that found that faith for them was what was called by the writers, moralistic therapeutic deism. These teenagers were moralistic. Be nice, be kind, be pleasant, be self-motivated. They were therapeutic. The problem of life had little to do with sin, but with subjective wellness. Faith really was a quest for feeling happy. And deism, well, God becomes involved in my life only when I need him. He's not in my life where I would just prefer that he not be involved. And it all was for the teens just another approach to works, righteousness, living independently of God and thinking all would be well, I'll be accepted for who I am and what I do. Well, there's still a lot of that around, but now, even though I'm just giving you a few approaches of works righteousness, now it is that, but also critical theory and cultural Marxism so-called social justice that has captivated youth in particular, which has nothing to do with social justice in the Bible, by the way. And this view of social justice is one of the worst forms of bondage ever invented by the fallen human heart. Everyone is either oppressed or oppressor, and it's all about the law of paying or being paid for a new definition of racism, endless atonement made by works toward the oppressed group. It's works righteousness through and through. It's killing our freedoms. It leads to joyless living, and it leaves us in our sins with no Savior. Works righteousness takes many forms. 
Heinrich Weinel, with whom I have great differences, 19th century theologian, made this statement with which I heartily agree. Weinel said, he can only be happy under a dispensation of law who can live a lifelong lie. Listen to it again. He can only be happy under a dispensation of law who can live a lifelong lie. That person can only be happy who thinks that somehow his moralistic approach to life or whatever his works righteousness system may be is going to work out in the end for eternity. But it is a lie, and it is a lifelong lie. You can only be happy by suppressing the truth that it's a lie. In contrast, there's the gospel. There is, of course, verse 20, in which Jesus said the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Probably a reference to Isaiah 53.8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. It's a prediction of the cross. And he tells them in John 16, the time is going to come in which I'm going to be taken away. And there would be a time of mourning But Jesus rose from the dead, people of God. He's not in a grave. And since Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead, since all things are made new in Christ, since a new reality has been inaugurated, then as a norm, sulky faces and certainly hopeless ways of viewing life are inconsistent with the Christian faith. What really matters in the Christian life What really matters is Christmas, Easter, Ascension, Pentecost, and the promise of Jesus' return at the end of the age. In other words, these great redemptive historical realities should define our Christian lives and determine our thinking and our living. So I want to bring it to conclusion in this way. All that we have read here this morning indicates that there is a new situation. The kingdom has come in the person of Christ. He has come. He came with good tidings of great joy. And Christ, as someone has said, is both the center and the cause of all the joy that his disciples experience. That's why they do not fast, but they feast. And this text has the force of reminding us that it is right for the Christian to be joyful no matter his circumstances, not always happy about everything, but joyful in our Lord's salvation and the promise of what is to come. To use a buzzword, the text is all about identity and how I get it straight. Or I would rather say it's about what makes the Christian distinct, so distinct that it controls all that the Christian is. And here it is. We are sinners to the core by nature. But believer in Christ, we are now forgiven. Yes, we are forgiven. We were outcasts, but now we feast at Jesus' table. 
we already anticipate and share in the joy of the messianic banquet that is yet future. Jesus is coming again, and that makes my life different, determined, distinct, useful, and joyful. As you see, there's something that the Pharisees never understood. They just never understood it. Oh, some were drawn out and called to Christ, but those who remained in that works righteousness system in which they thought their merit could earn something with God, they never understood. And adhering to a work system will never allow you to understand. The Pharisees never understood their lostness. And a person that understands his lostness will never turn to law for acceptance with God. Rather, law will drive him to the mercy of God in Christ. The Pharisees never understood lostness, and therefore, they never, not really, they never really had a place for the overwhelming grace of God. Here's what Calvin says. Listen to him, because it is the truth of the gospel. He came, Jesus came, to quicken the dead, to justify the guilty and condemned, to wash those who were polluted and full of uncleanness, to rescue the lost from hell, to clothe with His glory those who were covered with shame, to renew to a blessed immortality those who were debased by disgusting vices. If we consider that this was His office and the end, the purpose of His coming, if we remember that this was the reason why He took upon Him our flesh, why He shed His blood, why He offered the sacrifice of his death, why he descended even to hell. We will never think it strange that we should, he should gather to salvation those who have been the worst of men and who have been covered with a mass of crime. He whom you detest appears to you to be unworthy of the grace of Christ. Ever had such a thought? Why then was Christ himself made a sacrifice and a curse, but that he might stretch out his hand to accursed sinners? Now, if we feel disgust at being associated by baptism and the Lord's Supper with vile men and regard our connection with them as a sort of stain upon us, we ought immediately to descend into ourselves and to search without flattery our own evils. Such an examination will make us willingly allow ourselves to be washed in the same fountain with the most impure and will hinder us from rejecting the righteousness which he offers indiscriminately to all the ungodly, the life which he offers to the dead, and the salvation which he offers to the lost. O people of God, here is a faithful saying. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. And no matter how deep your sin is and your rebellion against God, we hold before you this morning a crucified Savior 
whose sacrifice is sufficient to save to the uttermost all who come to God by him. Come, come, and welcome to the feast. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Amen and amen.